even Christmas. Uh, you know, the whole issue of certainty and confidence, it's a pretty valuable asset. Uh, I mean, probably just about in any area of life you can think of. You know, think, think of like when you're flying. Uh, it's nice to be confident that, that, that air travel's safe. <laughs> I think we kind of take that for granted, most of us. But one of the, one of the little perks of uh, modern air travel is it's relatively timely. You know, they, it operates within schedules. But when it doesn't, I don't know if you've ever flown uh, from place to place and you have a connecting flight. And, you know, when you're coming into your first stop on a multi-stop flight and they say, okay, if you're traveling on the next leg of your journey on our airline on flight so-and-so and so-and-so, you know, you go to this gate and when you hear them say your flight number and they go, well, yours is delayed, <laughs> then you start going, oh my gosh, you start calculating in your head if you have another leg or, you know, you have to be somewhere and all those things start becoming very important. Confidence and certainty become really important. Uh, you know, in, in the whole area of finances and our economy, one of the reasons why our modern economies like American economy can work fairly well is there's a, a relatively high degree of certainty in our economy, meaning uh, the economic system has uh, the rule of law undergirding it, and, and people know that, that money is safe in banks, and these transactions are, are backed uh, and, and overseen and regulated, and uh, all these things give uh, add information and confidence to business people and, and, and big investors and small investors. When they know that when they have information that a business is run well, etc., and it, it, it yields this much return, etc., etc., and they can be confident that that business is going to run the way that that. Uh, they've been told, then they're willing to invest money. And then that company has money to do their business and bring services and goods, and everybody starts benefiting. When you pull confidence out of that, it all starts bogging down. And you see in emerging economies all over the world, one of the struggles that people have in participating in those economies, inside the economy, or from us maybe who have some money that want to invest there, is we're not sure if it's all going to work right. And, you know, when you worked hard for your money, you don't want to risk it unnecessarily. And so confidence is a pretty big thing, and, it, and it's big in our faith, too. And around Christmas every year, there are TV shows, and there's articles, and there's books released uh, around Christmas and Easter that challenge the whole basis of what Christians believe and say, listen, you know, you guys have been totally mistaken about what the Gospels teach about Jesus because, you know, then they go on to explain uh, their view uh, and how different it is from what we have been taught our whole lives if, you know, we've been around Christians, Christianity our whole lives. Well, I want to talk about that today because when you hear that, uh, depending on where you're at sort of in your faith journey, that, that challenges you because you go... You mean this stuff in this book might not be as it's been portrayed? This is like some of this is some or much or all of it's made up? How can I base my life on something that might just be totally fiction? That's a big deal. 
Uh, maybe some of you have experienced that. Maybe you're, you're already a follower of Jesus and you, and you're, you watch the History Channel and someone comes up and says, there's this new gospel that uh, is different than, the, than what, and it says different things than Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John did. And, uh, and, it, and it challenges maybe you at the core of your faith. And you're not necessarily equipped to address that and respond to that. You, you look at that and go, I don't know what this, what am I supposed to think? These are scholars. These are smart people. They're backed by publishing houses and they teach at prestigious schools and, you know, and they're, and they, they're, they're very persuasive in their presentation. What do we do with stuff like that? Well, this isn't a new problem and it isn't a problem we're supposed to hide from either. You know, some people they, if, if your faith can't get challenged, it's not much of a faith, right? Because our faith is supposed to answer the biggest questions that people can ask. And it's supposed to give us something to deal with the biggest challenges life offers. And whatever's from God, you would think would be able to withstand scrutiny and would be able to provide answers and provide resources for living life. And so some Christians don't want to they don't want to wrestle with these kinds of issues because they think, yeah, you know, I'm afraid of the answer, honestly. <laughs> uh, I've heard people say that to me before. And I go, gosh, you don't have to do that. You you can you can look at the gospel and the gospels and ask these hard questions and come up with answers that will satisfy you. So, in the New Testament, shouldn't be to anyone's surprise, they wrestled, people in those times in the first century wrestled with the same questions we wrestle with today. And what I want to do is, you know, if we're going to celebrate Christmas, uh, I want to tell you why you should believe in Christmas. And we're not going to look specifically at the, the Christmas narratives, but just the whole idea of the gospel of Jesus. And just, I want to give you something I think you could take away today that you can hear these challenges, and it's real simple, and I think that, that it, it can be something that you can sort of hang your hat on. So in, in Luke chapter 1, the beginning of the book of Luke, which is one of the four Gospels, there's four Gospels that, that really the Bible is built around the person of Jesus, and the person of Jesus, and everything we really know about him, the heart of it, it comes from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They wrote four narratives about the life of Jesus, and each one are, are, are subtly different, but they harmonize to tell us who Jesus was. And so I want to read these four verses, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to see what we can get out of these, and, and, and can they offer us any certainty or confidence you know, in our faith uh, in who Jesus was and, and what he, uh, his relevance to us today. So let's read these, and we'll pray. Luke chapter 1. By the way, if you don't have a Bible with you, in the chair seats underneath you, or uh, yeah, under you, and in front of you, there's uh, paperback Bibles. Feel free to use one of those. And uh, in fact, since I'm saying that, I help you if you're not that familiar with the Bible. The book of Luke, is, in Luke chapter 1, is page 709. Yeah, 709 in uh, this version of the paperbacks. Okay. Verse 1, Luke writes, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled or accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. 
Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you've been taught. There's that word certainty. So this person, Theophilus, was wrestling with confidence and certainty in what he had heard. Okay, so let's pray for a minute. Let's ask God just to help us to wrestle with that today and, and uh, maybe hear something from him that'll help us uh, when we face those times. Uh, Jesus, thank you for your life and your death and your resurrection. Thank you for uh, leaving your word, and this good news, and uh, it's in this record, the Bible, of your life and, and God's work in history. Uh, speak to us from it today and make yourself real to us. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, he's writing to Theophilus, and he says, Most excellent Theophilus. And he's probably uh, an, an educated, influential uh, person in the first century. And Theophilus, uh, it means friend of God or lover of God. And so, it, uh, most scholars believe it was a real person. They can't link it to a particular person who you know, was well-known. But uh, clearly, Theophilus... Uh, it was possible that he was a patron that financially supported Luke as he worked on this project because the kind of uh, study and research and effort that would have gone into writing this and researching it would have been expensive, it would have been time-consuming, and, you know, time's money, and so someone would need to support him. And Luke was a physician. We know uh, in the first century... Uh, that that's, that was his vocation. But he was also a follower of Jesus, and eventually he became a, sort of an itinerant preacher and worked with the Apostle Paul, who was a real, real, real famous first century Christian leader. And so Theophilus uh, might have been a Christian, might not have been. And Luke could have been writing this so that Theophilus would have a, a, a record for himself of who Jesus was. Or he could have been a Christian who was just you know, struggling with his faith. Uh, because there's, we're not going to break this down in detail, but there's lots of words in here in this first little section of the book of Luke that are really important big words that, that are repeated throughout the New Testament. But it implies, and it, well, it describes that uh, Luke and Theophilus are, are second-generation followers of Jesus, meaning the first generation of people who were the followers of Jesus were the people that saw Jesus face to face. They heard him. And they may have been children during that time. They may have been elderly. But they were right there. He would come through their town. Or maybe they would hear about him and go to, you know, to places where they heard Jesus was going to be speaking. But they were eyewitnesses, first-person accounts of, of Jesus then there's the second generation, which includes everybody from then on, which is us too. And the struggle is, um, how, how, how much can we depend on other people's stories about Jesus? And so, there was a word in here that Luke used. He said, the stuff that's been handed down to us from those first person people, he used this word, traditions. Well, the word that's often translated tradition. And in that day, scholars understand that that, that meant a, a, a history that was accepted 
It was like a body of truth that was faithfully passed down and valued from generation to generation. So what had already happened was, in, by the first generation, they could remember the things that they'd heard and seen and, and the impact Jesus made on them. But immediately, the need to have uh, accounts of this that were memorable, that uh, were little parcels of the gospel, was, uh, it was apparent that they were going to need that, just like in the Old Testament. And so, uh, in, well, we're really in every culture, uh, once you get past the first generation where something's happening, you need to make sure that that is passed on faithfully, whatever it might be. Could just could have just been the rules for how to farm. Uh, it gets passed on in some form, and so he's saying now, Theophilus, you've heard that stuff, and and you're wondering, can I trust that? Is that really what the first people encountered? Because what if what if and, and and they they wouldn't have had the telephone game in the first century, okay? You know, have you ever heard that in school, a telephone game, and that's supposed to uh, debunk. Christianity, because if you whisper something in someone's ear, and I remember sitting in a circle and doing this, not with reference to Christianity, it was just in a communications class where they were explaining how easy a message becomes garbled as it's passed from person to person, and we sat in this classroom, and uh, it went from person to person, and you whispered it, they whispered it, they whispered it, and you know it was written down on a note card what the first person whispered, and by the time it came around full circle, you know, you look at the note card, and the person spoke it out loud, and it was totally different, and that's supposed to show that the gospel can't have been passed on orally because uh, people are unreliable in doing that. Well, that's an, that shows a, a great ignorance of of how things can be passed on, but particularly in a culture where oral communication was so important, people had an, an amazing skill at memorizing things. And the most important things were given the most investment in terms of memory. And so Theophilus is wrestling with that because he's trying to figure out, on what do I base my life? Do you guys understand that? Every one of you in this room base your life on something. Every person who, who you're going to run into today, wherever you go, has some kind of belief system that guides them. It might not be a very good one. It's often not very well thought through. It's often not something that could stand much scrutiny at all. But everybody has one. Do you understand that? Everybody has a theology you believe about God. Everybody has something that helps them answer the big questions in life. Although there's honestly a lot of people just kind of muddle along and don't want to look at that. Because when they start looking at it, you know, it's like looking at your genealogy on those websites and you start you think you, everybody thinks they they they've descended from, you know, British kings. <laughs> and then you start studying your genealogy and you start realizing, well, I got some pretty, you know, strange characters in my family tree. Well, this story uh, of the gospel is really important to think through because your life could work, our lives can work really well or they can work really poorly. And what we build our lives on goes a long way 
and affecting how our lives work. And God really wants us to understand how life's supposed to work. And the gospel is at the heart of that. So Theophilus, uh, Luke says, I've carefully researched the accounts and underlying gospel tradition, he says in this, by talking to all the eyewitnesses who described and, and gave us this tradition. And I want you to know, I researched it carefully, and then I, I've written it out for you. Now, everybody in that day and age did not have the, 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 this privilege of having printed material. I mean, to have something written down that you could own was really expensive and really rare. And so, like in the Old Testament, people would share, I mean, like a whole town would have sometimes a few copies of parts of the Old Testament. And they would trade it between synagogues. And sometimes rich people uh, would be wealthy enough to be able to, to, to pay someone to copy them parts of the law. And so Christians uh, weren't well off per se. And so there wasn't that many copies of letters of the apostles available for any person like today we have. We take it for granted. Uh, I mean, that was a really precious thing that Theophilus had access to. So what Luke says basically is this. I'm just going to give you three simple points. When, when, when Luke researched it, here's, here's what he said. The reason why Theophilus... Just a second. That Theophilus, the reason why you can be sure that these traditions that you're hearing taught in the church are true is, number one, they are too early. They were written too soon to be fabrications. They're too detailed to be made up. And they're too unflattering to be stories and legends. So let's look at each of those. I heard this years and years ago from a guy named Tim Keller, and it kind of summarized a, a, an explanation of why you can trust the New Testament documents. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it with you, because it's, it's something that stuck in my head, and when I was thinking about this week, I thought, I'm just going to share this. I think this will be helpful to you. When people say to you, you can't trust the, 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 the four Gospels in particular, forget about the rest of the Bible, just the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you can say to them, like I'm saying to you, those these four Gospels were written too early to be legendary. They were written, most scholars say now, between 25 and 40 years after Jesus died. They were written at a time when anybody that wanted to, who had seen those events, could have challenged them and would have challenged them. And if you go back and you read the stories of the scholars, the first century scholars and writers and thinkers and people of other kind of religious faiths, they didn't ever challenge the basis of the gospel that Jesus did this, that he said this. They didn't agree with it, but they never challenged that the gospel preachers were telling a faithful picture of what had happened. They just didn't agree with the application that the Christians were making about the life of Jesus. 
the details, I'm sorry, the, the, uh, the apostles were constantly, as they went around and preached, if you read the, the rest of the New Testament, they would be preaching and they would say to the people who were listening to them, you know, we're telling you the truth. You heard Jesus say these things. This didn't, like they would use phrases like, this didn't happen in a corner somewhere, right? It wasn't made up. They could ask people and call to memory what people had seen themselves or what they'd heard other people say. In fact, <clears throat> I've said this often in talking about the book of Acts. When you read <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, a lot of people don't understand how the gospel kind of spread, but the gospel is all about Jesus, his life, his teachings, life, death, burial, and resurrection. And the people that killed Jesus were the people the first preachers went to. The gospel started in the most, among the most hostile people to it that you could imagine. Okay? And if it wasn't true what the preachers were saying, it wouldn't ever have made it out of Jerusalem. But not only made it out of Jerusalem, that became the center of Christianity from which the whole mission to the world was launched. So right from the get-go, no one disputed that Jesus did miracles, that he taught multitudes, he cast demons out of people. Uh, people disputed that he was raised from the dead, but when you look at the arguments for against his resurrection, you realize there's no way to explain the evidence that the historical documents give us about Jesus, except to say he, he must have been raised from the dead. I don't have resurrection in my framework for reality, but there's no way you can explain what happened and not say that Jesus was raised from the dead. And we won't get into that. That's, an, that's for an Easter message. But uh, the familiarity that, that the first audience had with these things, they knew what Luke was talking about, what the, the apostles were talking about. And so uh, there's a professor at Miami University here in Ohio who's a history professor, and his name's uh, Dr. Ed Yamuchi. And here's what he said. Uh, he's a professor of history. And he said, even if we didn't have these New Testament documents, okay, through non-Christian writings alone, we could summarize six crucial elements of the gospel that, I mean, really are foundational to the message of the gospel. Here's what he said. Like, from, from Josephus, from the Talmud, from Tacitus, from Pliny the Younger, there's a, there's a lot of first century authors that wrote about Jesus and about the early Christians and what they believed and what they did. And so he said, we could conclude these six crucial facts about the gospel, that Jesus was a first century Jewish teacher. I remember years ago, I got invited to debate the uh, editor of uh, this atheist magazine, and the first point he made was, Jesus was a legend, which was just ludicrous. I just thought, yeah, oh yeah, all the, 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 the hundreds of uh, New Testament studies departments in universities all over the world were 
Hundreds of students go every year to learn. And all the Jewish uh, researchers in the Middle East that are studying the life of Jesus are all doing this because he was like Zeus. <laughs> right? It, it was just, he's just a myth. And I just said, you know, I'm not even going to touch that. Uh, but, but some people would say that. But you really, there's too much evidence you know, that, that he, he did exist. He was a Jewish teacher in the first century. Second, many people, and this is what these the non-Christian, hostile to Christianity authors said about what the Christians believe. That they believed that he performed miracles, healed the sick, and cast out demons. They believed he was rejected by the Jewish leaders of his people, Israel. They believed he was crucified under Pontius Pilate during the reign of of Tiberius, who was Caesar, that his followers believed. Now, again, Tacitus hated, the only people he hated more than the Jews were Christians. But he said that the followers of Jesus believed that Jesus had been raised from the dead, that he wasn't dead. He was crucified, but he was, he was alive. And, that, uh, and Tacitus said multitudes of people by 64 A.D., believed this from Jerusalem all the way up into Rome, which is a pretty amazing thing for that to happen. They didn't have uh, high-speed transport and digital communication. So the spread of the gospel was person to person in the midst of, uh, of a very hostile environment where Christians were killed for talking about Jesus. But the gospel spread and spread and spread and spread and spread because of the, the fundamental facts weren't challenged. Remember we said, I've said often that if God wanted to situate a message about him in the place in the world where it would get the most exposure, he couldn't have picked a better place than Israel. Because it was, the, it was on the trade routes between Europe and Africa, Africa and Asia, Asia and Europe. Everybody went through that part of the world. And God planted the good news about himself there. He didn't like put it up on, on, on an island in the Aleutian chain off Alaska. He put it where it would be seen by as many people as possible. And so, last of all, and this is another controversial thing, that before the end of the first century, his followers were worshiping Jesus as God, which is another thing that a lot of modern scholars who put out these books debunking the gospel, say there's no way, they didn't believe he was God, that was hundreds of years later. That's not what Pliny the Younger, Tacitus, the Talmud, which is a, Jewish, a collection of Jewish writings, and Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, they all said the Christians worshiped Jesus as God, that they met every week, early in the morning, sometimes in secret, to sing songs of hymns, Sing hymns to Jesus whom they regard to be God. So we don't need the New Testament to know that, but does that sound amazingly like what you guys hear regularly on Sunday? So the Gospels were too early to be made up. Secondly, they were too detailed. You know this phrase, long ago in a galaxy far, far away, <laughs> right? Can you see those words rolling, scrolling up, you know? And the next lines, the trailer's out, by the way, if you haven't seen it, for the next Star Wars movie. But a lot of these, you know, m mythical tales start off 
long ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? There's, there's no, there's no uh, reality to it. The Gospels are rooted in history, in a time, in a place, in people. When you read the Gospels, you can't help but, especially if you compare it to other ancient mythical stories, you can't help but tell that the Gospels are a completely different kind of literature. They weren't stories about heroes. They weren't in that whole genre. They were totally different. They were very specific about things. And you read the book of Luke, and you can see that these are the details that you would expect in eyewitness accounts. That Jesus uh, some men brought a paralyzed man to see Jesus, and, and, and he was in a home, and it was so crowded they couldn't get in. So they got on the roof, and it says they removed the tiles of the roof and then let him down right in front of Jesus. Right? They're just giving you this picture. It says that when Jesus did the miracle of feeding the fish and the loaves uh, to thousands, that he was by the Sea of Galilee, and he asked them to sit down on the green grass, which during the fall and the spring, because it doesn't rain much in that area, but in the fall and the spring, it rains. And all year long, the gra- the, 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 everything's brown, but during those two times, the grass all around the Sea of Galilee is green. I mean, there's just detail after detail in the Gospels that shows it's not, it's not legendary material. It's not myth. They're reporting something that they saw and that they want you to take seriously because of its power, okay? Uh, C.S. Lewis said this, and C.S. Lewis is a very respected uh, Christian apologist, but he was a professor of ancient literature at Oxford and Cambridge in England. He's famous And here's what he said about the Gospels. He said, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. So I know what they're like. I know none of them are like the Gospels. Sorry. This thing. I'm going to stop again. Of the Gospel texts, there are only two possible views. Either... They are reportage, which was his sort of 1940s way of saying they're giving you an account of something real, or else some unknown ancient writer without known predecessors or successors suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. So he's saying what we're used to when you read a novel like Hawaii or other kinds of novels that are now embedded with, you know, details to help you kind of relive what that world would have been like. That wasn't the way they wrote in the ancient world. They're not, they're, their hero stories and novels weren't detail-oriented. So he said, and this is the way kind of professors tend to be, he says, the reader who doesn't see this has simply not learned how to read. <laughs> right? Did you ever have a professor in college that kind of talked that way? And it's true. And we let these people who throw this, this spaghetti of you know, criticism about the Gospels against the wall you know, shake us. The truth is, 
really, really credible scholars go, the Gospels are too early and they're too detailed. And then not only are they too early and too detailed, but they are unflattering. Now, you know, this may not always be something you grasp about, about the message of the gospel. Let me go through a couple of points. Uh, the gospel was highly offensive to its audience. People did not like it from beginning to end. I mean, there, there are so many parts of the gospel that we kind of take for granted. They're just, oh, they just, you know, we have the little crèche, the manger scene, right? And uh, all the little things that to us we've, we've warmed up to and are just so meaningful. But let me just start like with the basics. The gospel says that God came into the world to save the world through the Jews. Now, I don't know if you knew this or not, but anti-Semitism has been around a long time. People have hated the Jews for millennia. The idea that God wouldn't send the good news through the Romans, through a Roman baby and a Roman family and Roman prophets, was offensive. Not just to the Romans, to the Greeks, to whoever. Because, right? Isn't that that part of our American culture? Don't we always feel like all the best things come up from America? Certainly, you know, great cooking could never come from someplace like France. <laughs> right? I mean, we gave the world pizza. What did they give the world? That's just part of our cultural sort of racist, ethnicist attitude that we all have. Everybody has it. But do you think that, that when... <laughs> The, the first Christians were Jews. And when the Jews went around and said, we've got the truth and we're the only ones that have it. You've got to get it from us. Do you think that that made all those people just warm and go, oh, we've just been waiting for you guys to tell us that too. <laughs> you know, you, you're, we don't like you and, and we're not going to like your message. But you just go through the gospel and see all the things like uh, the mother of Jesus was pregnant before she got married. That wasn't acceptable then at all. It's more acceptable now, but certainly wasn't then at all, especially in Jewish culture. Uh, The apostles, you read the stories of the gospels, the apostles were full of doubt and confusion. They had terrible character. They argue with each other. They talk back to Jesus. Jesus would say something, and they'd say, you're wrong, right? If they were making up the stories, do you think that they would put that kind of stuff in there? No, they just put it in there for audiences like us today. So we would be convinced by it because we all like people who are authentic. No, that kind of stuff is counterproductive. That kind of stuff undermines the message. The hearers would hear that and go, you guys are like, you're a mess. What are you telling us? how to live. Look at you. Look at the leaders. These were the leaders that Jesus commissioned to go out. None of their stuff was hidden or glossed over, right? Uh, The leaders of Jesus' own people rejected him. The first, here's a big one, the first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection, which was a big deal, 
were women. They were women. Now, we're not shocked by that today. Women in the first century were, could not testify in courts. They were not considered reliable. Do you understand that? That was a universe. Even women believed that about themselves then. It was universally held. Every gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, says the first people who Jesus appeared to were women. If that wasn't true, why would they put it in there when it would undermine the credibility of their message? I mean, and on top of all that, the last thing, the most, the part of the gospel that was the most unpalatable to people was the crucifixion. I won't belabor this point, but there's, there's nothing more scandalous about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, other than the whole story, the, the point of the whole story was Jesus' death and resurrection. And the Jews didn't like that, and the Gentiles didn't like that, nobody liked it. Because nobody wanted to be associated with that. The Romans didn't even really like crucifixion. It was just an effective form of capital punishment that suppressed people and did the job. The fact that Jesus was crucified and that was God's plan and that's what the gospel said was a scandal. It didn't make the gospel more attractive unless it was true. You see that? If it's not true, why on earth would they put it in there? Because it, it says something, the reason why not only did they not like the association, but it says something about us, the audience who hear the gospel. It says... We are so messed up that we're under God's judgment. And if you want to know what the judgment's like, look at Jesus and what he went through. That's the judgment we all deserve. And everybody has enough self-respect to think, I'm not bad like those other people. I know that maybe Jesus had to die like that for other people's misdeeds, but not mine, certainly. The gospel nails everybody and says, your lives are wrecked. You're, you're, we're, all, we're all alienated from God because of this. And our only hope is in the power of what Jesus did, which was shown when they killed him, he was raised from the dead because death couldn't hold him. The powers of the world, the political powers, which we all have respect for and fear for, and all, people always do, whoever has power rules, Jesus defeated them too. They couldn't stop God and God's plan. That's why it's always been attractive to people who are oppressed. But a lot of the times we don't realize we're oppressed. Because some, we're mostly concerned with outward oppression. and We're not concerned with the oppression of our own sin. And so the gospel says that Jesus died for both. He wants to end oppression of us by people in power, but he also, more importantly, the only way you can do that is if human hearts are changed. And so the message is not a message of moral uplift. It's a, it's a humbling message. It's a message that makes people stop and think and go, can I really be that bad? That the only way I can be reconciled to God is if someone suffers and dies that horrible of a death for me? 
that that's the only hope there is? Yes. That's why it is so offensive to people. So, you may be here today, and maybe you're kind of just a happy hedonist. You know what I mean? Like, I just kind of cruise through life. I haven't sorted all this big, the big questions of life out. I'm just going from paycheck to paycheck, putting some money away, take a vacation here and there. And I don't worry about those big questions. But those big questions are there. And you, and you can hide from them, but you will run into them eventually. You will need to answer those questions. And I want to tell you something. Whether you've thought this through or not, if, if that's all your life consists of, and you could you feel free to disagree with me afterwards if you want to talk about this, but your life is meaningless. I don't mean because the job you have is meaningless, but the big question philosophers have to answer is, why is anything here at all? Why is anything here? Why is this here instead of nothing here? Because God made it. And he has a purpose for it. He has a purpose for your life. And you don't get to decide that purpose. You get to discover it. Because if the reason why this deciding your purpose is not valid is, what if a person says, I can decide what's my purpose, and my purpose is I want to inflict pain on other people. I want to exploit people. What what can you say to refute that if that's what they feel like is their purpose and they want to direct their purpose towards you? You don't have any, except the force of law, you don't have any way to challenge that with your philosophy as a happy hedonist. Because if there's no order to anything, then everything's meaningless. It's very painful. I've had conversations with people, we've talked this through, and, and at the end of it, I've watched people like just get depressed. Because they realize the implication of not having a purpose in life is my life is meaningless. You know, <laughs> really bright people have wrestled with that and, and found that that's a, that's a very heavy thing to consider. And maybe you're someone here who's, you're, you're asking some questions. You're, you know, you realize, I need to figure out life better than I have it figured out. And you're starting to look at Jesus and you're starting to ask questions about is he really real? Is this all this stuff in the Bible, is it credible? And is it relevant for me? I, I think what you're finding right now is what we like to say around here is, is that you're, you're starting to discover that God loves you, he's pursuing you, and he wants a relationship with you. And the key to that relationship is found in Jesus. And the key to you finding purpose in your life is finding reconciliation with God. And dealing with this whole thing of doing life on your own terms. And what it's cost you and what it's cost people around you. And what it costs all of us. That Jesus is the answer to that. So if you want to chat more about that, you want to talk. You, want to, uh, you know, there's people I get together with every month pretty regularly where they're sorting that out. And they come and go here at the Vineyard. And others of us do the same thing. If you want to start, sort of start in that journey and start reading the Gospels and asking questions and think, just come up and talk to me afterwards. But last of all, if you're a believer in Jesus, and every Christmas and every Easter, you get hit in the face with these new books and these, you know, History Channel specials and the articles and the, 
all the stuff that goes out there that, that you feel like can shake your faith, just realize the Gospels are historically reliable. And, and many scholars, in fact, most scholars in a position to know this will say the, old, the, the New Testament documents are the most historically reliable documents that, that human beings have in their possession. That we have so many, and they date back so many thousands of years that we are confident that what the New Testament writers talked about really happened. There's thousands of scholars who believe that, people who, who have given their lives to studying these things in great detail. Now, there's a, there are some that don't. That's a more philosophical thing. If your faith is getting hammered by them, you can, you can be sure the Gospels are reliable and your faith is... You can have confidence in your faith even if other people don't in their faith because they haven't looked into it. They don't know that the Gospels are too soon, they're too detailed, and they're, they're too unflattering to have been made up. And you can tell people that. This is not a hard thing to walk people through. But it's an important one because you're going to suffer in your life for, at, at different seasons of time. And you've got to be able to know God will be there for me when I'm suffering. And you can look at the testimony of the stories of the people of faith in history that are in the New Testament and the Old Testament and see how it turned out for them. And see that God, God stuck with them. When they held on to God, they made it through things that they never thought they could have. And they saw God rescue them and, and, and pursue them and protect them and be involved in their lives and be with them in their suffering in ways that other people who don't have that kind of foundation don't have. So here at Christmas... Uh, and, you know, with people you know who are not believers, it may not sound all that convincing to you to rehearse those little things. Like if they say to you, I don't know if I can buy the Bible. You just tell them what I said. Send them to this link and just say, listen to this. And then talk to them and, and, and try to explain to them the story like we said, the story of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, because it doesn't sound that persuasive when you just hear it, because we forget how persuasive it was when we first heard it. I still look back to when I was an 18-year-old freshman in college, and I heard this the first time, and I remember sitting there and thinking, I've never heard anything like this before. This, like, it spoke to something deep inside me. And I was, you know, raised as a holiday Christian, but I didn't understand it. But it's the, the, this young guy just applied it directly to my life in a way that I felt like he knew me. And it, just telling the story speaks to people that way. He wasn't. He was just preaching the gospel. But when people, when, when, when God's pursuing people because he loves them and he wants a relationship with them, the, the gospel is this powerful thing that if we share it with people, it moves them. And sometimes, you know, they have to hear it a number of times before it kind of sinks in. But you can be confident in your conversations with people that this will speak to them, especially in, in, in pertinent moments of their life where they're really you know, struggling and, and their, their world's being shaken. Because that's usually when God comes along and says, your world's shaking, I've got something for you. Okay, So let's pray and just close and uh, we'll send you guys all home.
Uh, but let's ask God to help us to wrestle with this, to look for opportunities to share it, you know, and, and apply it to our own lives. Uh, Father, thank you for uh, the good news about your son Jesus. And thank you that it, 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 it is unflattering and it's hard for us to hear. And it, it makes us uncomfortable. It wounds our pride. But it's the truth and it's, and it's good news. Uh, help us to get past our, our pride and our, our, that part of us that's, that's just not very attractive. Uh, help us to hold on to the good news about you and let it speak to our hearts and, and draw us through it, believing it to you. Father, for each person that's here today, whatever point in their journey that they're on, I, I pray that uh, they would open their hearts up to the next place that you're trying to draw them and take them. And, uh, we ask for your presence just around us and be with us in this whole season that uh, the, the joy that we're supposed to experience because of Christmas and the, the story of your coming into the world and your son, that that would just become so amazing to us and so 